Are you a software professional looking to make a lasting impact on people and the planet? At General Motors, our vision is a world with zero crashes, zero emissions, and zero congestion. And we need innovative people like you to join us on this journey and challenge the limits of what is possible. From autonomous cars to software-defined vehicles, you'll translate breakthrough technologies like AI into experiences that people love, all while pushing the world forward toward an all-electric future. See how you can shape the future of mobility at careers.gm.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, June 12th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is brought to you by Loot Crate, the subscription box for the geek, gamer, and nerd in all of us. For less than $20 a month, you can get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash mines and enter code mines to save $3 off any new subscription. This month, Loot Crate invites you to join the cyber revolution with an assortment of cool tech-themed collectibles from a wide array of awesome franchises. They're featuring exclusive items from Terminator Genesis, Borderlands 2, and more, including an exclusive t-shirt you won't find anywhere else. You only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash mines and enter code mines to save $3 on your new subscription today. Today is second in our series on emergent technologies. All this month, we're talking with engineers, scientists, and journalists covering and shaping these technologies and how they'll impact our society. Put on a headset and be transported anywhere, anytime. That's the promise of virtual reality, which has made a tremendous resurgence in the past few years. I remember a time in the early 90s when VR was all the rage. You'd see a few games at the arcade, but the tech never lived up to the hype. It was always a bit janky, never immersing you into a world that felt real. While the consumer end of the business collapsed in the mid-90s, the research continued behind the scenes in academia and at places like NASA Ames, Stanford, and MIT. But the advent of smartphone technology greatly reduced the cost of key components for VR, like inertial movement units or IMUs. So a few years ago, an entrepreneur named Palmer Lucky used Kickstarter to fund a new VR headset. That became Oculus. And fast forward a couple years, consumers had greatly responded to it, and Facebook saw an opportunity and bought them for a cool $2 billion. Enter every other tech giant like Google, Sony, Microsoft, Samsung, HTC, Valve, and so many more, who've all bet countless more billions that VR represents the next wave in consumer electronics. But do you remember Google Glass? 
With any new technology, there is a fine line between mass adoption and mass ridicule. And with so many different products coming on the market, I sought out the editors of my favorite site on all things tech, Tested.com, with editors Will Smith and Norman Chan. It's pretty much my favorite site on the internet, with long-form reviews of tech, profiles of makers, and discussions of trends, plus podcasts and features with Adam Savage and Janie Heineman as a bonus. They pretty much have reviewed every piece of VR hardware out there. When you search for images of Oculus, Will's picture pops up. And we had a ranging conversation about history, applications, and what it will take for this iteration of VR to succeed. So stay tuned for that. That's our interview for this week. But Indre, did anything catch your eye in the news this week? Absolutely. Well, there are a lot of things going on this week. But one thing that I thought is really important for us to talk about is a new meta-analysis that just came out that is trying to compare CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, for insomnia with drugs that treat sleep disorders. And so this, I think, is something that a lot of people are really you know, should really perk up and pay attention to. We've we've had Matt Walker on the show before talking about sleep and how in some ways he likens it to smoking, you know, before we learned how bad it was for us, that it was this, you know, you know, big thing that there's a lot of evidence out there that it's bad for us, but because of the tobacco industry, we didn't find out about it until much later. Well, he thinks we're at the same place with sleep that, you know, we have terrible sleep habits, but no one's talking about the actual health consequences of not getting enough sleep. Well, of course, those people who have insomnia, who don't get enough sleep regularly, often turn, they know the result that it's bad for them, they often turn to drugs to alleviate their sleep issues. But the problem is, is that a lot of these drugs don't actually mimic or put you into the kind of restorative sleep that you need in order to get all the health benefits. And so, don't they have big side effects too? Of course. You can become dependent on the sleep drugs. You can have you know problems during the day of being drowsy or not or what have you. Um, they could even cause the opposite effect where you know it sort of might keep you up at night and so forth. And you know, any putting any kind of, you know, being becoming dependent or or you know taking a drug of any sort um, for the long term, if you can avoid it, obviously that's probably better for you. So what if I told you that there was a treatment that had no side effects, that was just as effective as drugs, and in fact, in some ways, more effective than drugs, and you know that you could do within a few weeks? Is it a beer right before <laughs> bedtime? Um, no, actually, that is not the solution. It actually impairs your sleep. <laughs> um, but what I'm talking about is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a talk therapy in which you kind of reassess your sleep associations and, and various other issues related to sleep. Um, so often your sleep issues can be psychological, can be your inability to turn off or anxiety related to things that have occurred to you during the day and so forth. And CBT, this new meta-analysis shows, is just as a effective as many sleep aids. In fact, I found out about this meta-analysis through a blog post on the New York Times.com by Austin Fracht. Um, so I want to give him a shout out. Thank you for that. Um, he talks about his own problems with insomnia, and he focuses on a couple of randomized trials that compared CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, with a number of different sleep aids and found that it is either just as good or even better that the uh, patients experienced greater relief with CBT than with certain sleep drugs, and that CBT 
on the long term was more durable, which I think is even more exciting. And so this meta-analysis that just came out in the Annals of Internal Medicine quantifies just how much CBT can help. Um, and it turns out that on average, patients treated with CBT fell asleep almost 20 minutes faster and were awake in the night almost a half hour less. So that doesn't sound like a lot of time, um, but the total amount of time that they were sleeping when in bed increased by nearly 10%. And if you think about, you know, most of us need about eight hours of sleep a night in order to not show any problems in health, right? If you go down to six hours, you actually can become within a week, uh, you can show signs that are akin to as if you were pre-diabetic, like it has major issues on your metabolism and so forth. I'll take an extra 10%, Yeah, especially with a a non-invasive therapy like this. And and it's durable. Let's contrast this though. Like I've heard a lot of people say like you you should have a routine around sleep and and use your bed only for sleeping and not for like work and uh, other behaviors. They, uh, so is this, is CBT just that kind of stuff or is this a step beyond that? No. So what you're talking about is good sleep hygiene. So that's what we, you know, talk about, you know, if you're going to have a, a glass of wine or a beer or what have you, make sure that it's several hours before you want to go to sleep, stay away from blue light, you know, anything with a computer screen, um, because that can mess with the way that your brain, um, sort of puts itself to sleep using melatonin. Um, it can suppress melatonin in your brain. Um, and, but, but CBT is actually, um, different in the sense that i mean it's sort of it's sort of based on the same principles and that you're you're changing your your sort of behavior around sleep but it's also your cognitions right it's not just your sleep associations and in fact um fract describes a online cbt program that was recommended to him that was effective um so i you know the meta analysis talks about i think most of the time they're 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 you're actually going to a practitioner um and and working with someone in order to develop these better habits but um apparently you could even do it online and hopefully that is you know just as effective i don't i don't know that the jury is still out there but um you know at least it's it, you know there there's a there's a sense of promise uh that if you could just have a kind of online cbt experience this this could make a major dent into this very serious health issue if any of our listeners out there have actually tried this type of therapy especially this online C- cbt we'd love to hear from you because this is really interesting and it runs contrary to every advertisement we see on tv um, all of the the conversation that I have with friends that are uh, insomniacs about what they do, they're popping pills to make it sleeping easier. And although, you know, the plural of anecdote is not data, <laughs> um, you know, I think that think that that's what's what's nice about this uh, systematic review is that we're seeing over the course of 20 clinical trials, a thousand patients, chronic insomnia, um, that we're still seeing improvements with CBT. So, you know, it's it's it, I, I don't know, I can't evaluate the online program, um, you know, specifically, but uh, certainly the treatment as itself seems promising. The news item caught my eye. Have you heard about a computer that can run on water? No. <laughs> yeah, so it runs contrary to everything we understand about computers, like waters and computers don't mix. But Manu Prakash, who's a scientist at Stanford, he's one of my favorite scientists. He pioneered something called Foldscope, which is essentially like a paper origami microscope that sells for cents. So people in uh, in uh, rural areas and in third world countries can do microscopy. Uh, one of my favorite projects out there. He had been wondering as a grad student if there's something you can do with water in terms of its formation of bubbles or droplets to mimic logic. And so what he developed is this postage size stamp uh, maze where it's metal coated with oil and uh, little droplets of water would be placed on it. And then a rotating magnetic field would push those water droplets a small amount 
that's a set distance. And then using an overhead camera, they would image uh, those droplets as they moved along. And if there was a drop there, essentially was binary for one. And if it wasn't there, it's it was zero. And essentially, he made a logic circuit and was able to utilize just water and a rotating magnetic field to actually accomplish computational tasks. Wow, <laughs> that's kind of amazing. Yeah, and it, what's uh, what's fascinating about this is sort of uh, is two things like why 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 would you do this why would you build a computer out of water because it's intensely slow we're moving water as opposed to something essentially running at the speed of light so it's incredibly slow compared to computers but the implications that are, are really interesting is that water droplet doesn't just have to be a water droplet it could carry chemical or biological material and so you could almost see this as an automated way of doing mass manufacturing of that chemical material that it's, that it's uh, bringing together, or even automate certain laboratory testing, because now the engine of your computation can also be the delivery system for items that you're, you're studying. Wow. It's, uh, <laughs> my mind is just trying to process those implications. But it makes me wonder, is this the kind of thing that, you know, is it, is it, is it we're not thinking that this is going to replace a silicon chip, right? And nothing like that, but what it uh, what it really illustrates is, I think, twofold. It, it's sort of a thought experiment come into a physical object, and we'll post the video of it in action on our Tumblr, uh, that you can think about how we process logic in really different ways and use fluids uh, as a source of logic. And there's all sorts of items in nature that you can think about in this computational method. In fact, most of synthetic biology is, is thinking about uh, the natural world in this way from the perspective of, of computers. Wow. Very cool. Okay, with that, we'll take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Will Smith and Norman Chan of Tested.com. This episode is sponsored by CuriosityStream.com, where top minds come together to explore the big questions of the universe. CuriosityStream is the world's first ad-free, on-demand streaming service for videos that inform, educate, and inspire. Think Netflix for documentaries. For the cost of downloading one title from other streaming services, CuriosityStream subscribers have access to hundreds of titles in different subject areas. Watch fascinating documentaries and enriching short-form videos on technology, science, and more. CuriosityStream.com is ad-free, on-demand, and your first 60 days are totally free. Head to CuriosityStream.com minds and start diving deep. Have you ever wondered why the filters you use in your home, like in your refrigerator, furnace, or AC unit, cost so much? Well, they don't have to. With this week's sponsor, DiscountFilters.com, you'll find top quality household filters at a fraction of the price. Air filters are important. They keep your air clean and healthy. Likewise, we all need clean, healthy, and refreshing drinking water and ice. Keeping up on your refrigerator filter keeps your water fresh and clean. How easy is it to forget to buy and change these filters? Too easy. With DiscountFilters.com, they'll send you an email reminder when it's time to change and also when it's time to replenish. On top of industry-leading pricing and customer service, you can also be confident in your order because you'll be receiving free shipping and returns on every single order. Their policy is absolutely hassle-free customer service. They have filters to match any fridge, furnace, or AC unit, and if you're not sure what filter to get, They also offer helpful filter finders and experts available if you need them. Visit discountfilters.com slash minds and receive 10% off your order. Again, that's discountfilters.com slash minds to get 10% off your order. Will Smith and Norman Chan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having us, Kishore. It's great to be here. 
The Verge did this incredible piece on the retrospective about virtual reality um, sometime last year. And there's one quote that stuck out to me. Put on these goggles, go nowhere, and be transported anywhere, which sounded like a beautiful statement about the promise of virtual reality. And where I wanted to start with you guys is what is it about this technology and its current iteration that hooked you, that told you that there is something here worth exploring? Uh, I think there's a, a, a sense of real believability that you're in that space. Um, and a lot of that is accumulation of dozens of different technologies that have reached some, finally have reached a tipping point. And then uh, in this current resurgence of virtual reality, which I think we can kind of trace back to that, that, that first Oculus Kickstarter, um, getting the, the video game and other types of developers involved and actually creating interesting content. The, the big thing for me is the when you put the glasses on, you you literally are transported to another world. And, it, and the thing that people think about is that it should be photorealistic and it's going to look like the world that we inhabit every day. But the thing that we've seen over the last two or three years is that it doesn't have to be photorealistic at all. You can you can go to a space. You can go fly around in space. You can explore the outside of the ISS. But you can also go into like these low poly environments that look like something you'd remember from like the Nintendo 64 and your brain doesn't care. It 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 can take a sense of presence, take a feeling that this is a real thing that you're that you're a major part of your sensorium is being affected with, without without having to have the the you know the super detailed textures and all that stuff that you're used to from video games. You, I mean, and the, the phrase virtual reality. If you break that down, it is the, the perfect. S- simulation of a reality so you think about what what is a reality is uh does reality have to be something that is photorealistic have to be an exact replica of a real physical location that's it doesn't it just has to feel like a place um and for your brain to feel that you are in that place to be tricked effectively uh virtual reality researchers and enthusiasts uh have a, a phrase for that and we'll allude to it's the idea of presence what does presence feel like when you're there, and is the technology there? Uh, so we're starting to see technology that can that can mimic presence or give you a sense of presence. And what it, what it what it feels like is you put the glasses on. After a moment, you stop paying attention to the fact that you have these glasses on your head and you're looking at something that looks like a video game, and your brain just takes it as real. So, for example, if you're on the deck of an underwater of a submerged ship. And a whale swims up to you and looks you in the eye. It knows where your eye is. You know where its eye is. You're looking at it. The pupil dilates. The whale takes off swimming. Its fin comes up beside you, and it's going to hit you in the head. You duck without even thinking about it. It's so literally the feeling that your brain is tricked into thinking what you're seeing is real. Even with this piece of headwear on, you get to that point where you are so immersed in this situation that you naturally react like that. Your it seems like. kick in. I think the headwear is a piece of it. And when we talk about the idea of presence, uh, it's not just a visual sense of presence. It's all your senses. So we're talking about sound, smell, haptics. And obviously, for most people, the visual sense is the, 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 the that's the sense that you're most strongly affected by. Are we really um, talking about stuff that has haptic feedback? And eventually. And haptics is a big part of it. All factory feedback? That seems so yeah, we, crazy we, we, and uh, intense. We talked to uh, researchers who came out from overseas, they did a project called Birdly, and they use a virtual reality headset. The headset itself wasn't terribly complicated, but uh, what we felt, the sense of presence we got was because they put a fan in front of their apparatus. You had one-to-one control over your arms in the virtual space and your real space, and all these little cues, that as long as your brain can be tricked in as many 
ways as possible, uh, that all leads to this idea of presence. And and Birdly is a great example of something. It was super lo-fi. It was using the original. Uh, I flew in Birdly myself yeah. too, so I can relate to this. You, you you get you put these things on. You put your arms in these wing analogs, and you're hooked up to these hydraulics that just do the tiniest bit of tilting forward and back and side to side. The fans in front of you, so your skin feels the speed of the air moving around you. And when you start twisting your arms, it literally feels like you're flying. Um, right up until the point that you auger into the side of a building. Yeah, I crashed into the Bay Bridge, and it was the most gratifying crash into the Bay Bridge because Birdly was set up to take you on a flight over the Bay Area. And it was amazing. But l- let's back up a second. This is not the first time that VR has really hit the market. We've been talking about VR since I was an adolescent. Uh, so this has been in development since like the 70s, 80s. Even the 90s was the last time I really remember virtual reality. And then it crashed and went away. What is different about 2.0? So um, depending on how you count it, this could be the second or third or fourth or twelfth, whatever generation of VR. Um, the crash in the 90s happened because there was a lot of promise and we saw a lot of film uh, about, you know, a lot of pop culture coming on about uh, about virtual reality. Things like, you know, Johnny Mnemonic and Lawnmower Man and a bunch of terrible Lawnmower like, Man wasn't movies. that terrible, though? Lawnmower Man's pretty bad. Go, don't, don't go back and watch Lawnmower Man. Oh, it doesn't hold up. It does not Uh-oh. age well. Um, but that stuff didn't work well. And the thing that's interesting about VR from a from a uptake perspective is that if any th- bit of it goes wrong, you can have a bad experience. And a bad experience with a cell phone or a tablet or a computer means that like the computer crashes and you lose five minutes of work and you go back and start over again. But a bad experience in VR means that you feel nauseous or even throw up. And I don't know about you. If I do something and it makes me throw up the first time I do it, I'm probably not going to come back for seconds. I think that's fair. And, and from a, so from a product development standpoint, when you have people like the founders of Oculus, and and you're right, VR, while it went away from a consumer-facing uh, point of view, it's been in military research. It's been in academia. Uh, these past few decades, we've seen large you know, room-sized installations that we're experimenting with, the, with virtual reality. There's a, there's a better understanding with the new, the new developers of VR hardware, at least, of what, the, what cues people are most responsive to, where the breaking points are, and also a tipping point where the, the electronics and the software and hardware is more affordable to a point where it makes sense to build a company, a billion-dollar company out of it. This is actually the big thing. If you look at the stuff that made the Oculus Rift and, and all the other VR headsets we've seen in production now or, or ramping up to production, possible, it's the decrease in cost of components that came with smartphones. How much is uh, – like Oculus was, what, $300 when it hit Kickstarter? Was that the goal? For a developer kit. And I, you know, we don't know what their cost structure on that is. But I mean, they, I think they, they sold it for $250 or $300. I don't it, what's remember. A- comparable other uh, VR kits running in terms of their, their costs because of smartphones. They're all about that. And when you talk about smartphones, that is the catalyst, right? We're talking about three things in a smartphone or two things that directly feed into uh, what we think of currently as a VR headset is the display and the motion sensors, the IMU, um, these inertial motion units. Um, and smartphones have gyroscopes, they have accelerometers. Um, they're very cheaply made. Anyone can buy these IMU units. You can put them on anything. And so when uh, when Oculus first started, Palmer Lucky got these units, got smartphone, basically essentially smartphone displays, and then worked to develop the optics, the lenses, to to make the smartphone display look less like a flat screen and more like uh, more like how your eyes see the world and, and expand the field of view that you see. So when you tilt, it was already tilting and moving. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I've heard a lot about motion tracking coming in in the future developments of Oculus. Can you talk a little bit about why that's so important? 
Motion tracking is the most important thing. Um, positional tracking, I think, is a more accurate thing to describe it. Uh, the first Oculus, the first you know Oculus prototype and the first development kit had rotational movement. So when we first put on those demos back in uh, CES 2013, I believe, um, you could turn your head, and, and it was a very game-changing thing. You know, it won a lot of best of CES awards because we had not been able to get that level of precision, even in rotational movement before. Uh, but they quickly realized that in order for virtual reality to succeed, you're going to be able, you're gonna have to be able to not only move your head, but also have other parts of your body represented uh, in that virtual space through some type of controller. Um, the head tracking stuff, head positional movement tracking stuff came last year, uh, about a year ago. And uh, I, don't, I don't see any VR headsets out there that want to take it seriously that don't have it. Part of the challenge with VR is that your perception of the world is based on, you know, your inner ear agreeing with what your eyes see. So if you turn your head and the image on the, on the VR goggles lags, uh, even a tiny, tiny fraction of a second, we're talking like 10, 12 milliseconds. That's enough to throw off your, the part of your brain that just handles all this stuff. Oh, wow. Um, uh, instinctively. And, and there's other challenges on top of that. Men and women perceive depth differently and, or some, some people perceive depth differently. It seems like it's skewed a little bit one way for women and one way for the other for men. Um, there's a ton of research going on in that stuff, but because, um, because the latency is so important, the accelerometers and the gyroscopes which measure your relationship with, with you know, the center of Earth and the direction of your movement maybe don't perform as well as, say, a camera with some LEDs that light up in a specific pattern. Um, you know, that one may be faster than the other. Or working together, they may provide a better effect than, than everything together. So the first time I actually tried virtual reality 2.0, whatever number we ascribe to it, was with Google Cardboard, which is this thing they came out with at their... Uh, developer conference, basically, and this folded cardboard piece with lenses in it, and you stuck your smartphone in it, and you turned on the app, Mm -hmm. and you got to do a couple things. And within two minutes, I was nauseous. But those two minutes were awesome. They were an amazing experience like I had never had since I was in those old, big arcade machines back when I in the 90s. What do you think of this sort of nascent technology? Is the idea of like a phone going to be the enabler of VR? Uh, it already has been an enabler of VR. Uh, for example, Facebook, uh, who bought Oculus, they have a product in, that they built, designed in partnership with Samsung, that is the, the Gear VR, where you put a Samsung phone in there. And, and like I mentioned earlier, the phone technology, that display and the built-in sensors, those are the things that catalyze this, this modern revival of VR. Google Cardboard is just an extension of that so why do you need to buy a separate display or a separate sensor when you can put your five inch phone in a piece of cardboard they provide the lenses and have that great first 30 second to two minute experience well, i'd like more than a two minute experience before i get nauseous well so so but google cardboard is a good way to find out if if it works for you like if you have vision problems or one eye is bet worse than the other you may not vr you may not get any depth perception with vr and without that you lose half of your field of view and and there's a bunch of other and stuff that kind of goes work, it's not yeah. as good um, Google Cardboard is a kind of proof of concept. It's a thing that you can go get for very cheaply. You can order them online for like 10 or $15 now. You jam your phone in there. You load up the app. You see some fish swimming around. You look at some 3D video of stuff. And then 
you know, maybe that's that's enough to say, okay, I, I am willing to spend a few hundred dollars on something when it's available. Of course, not any none of this stuff is available for normal people really to buy right now. It's so, for that aha moment. I mean, you talked about it being a, a, a revelation for you when you first put it on. VR is a very difficult concept. We can talk about it for days for people to understand and grasp until they actually try it. Even a very basic VR technology. I think what Google Cardboard does uh, in that really cheap form factor, everyone has a smartphone, is at least give you that first 30 seconds and get, oh, okay, this is what people mean when they say they can see you know, a, a panoramic video and feel like they're there. Uh, but then at that point, you need the better technology. What's the next level up? Because all I did was swim with the fishes, like you said, Will. What's the next level up that I'll be able to do? Is it playing games? Is it going to museums? Is it uh, taking virtual field trips through the universe? G- games is where it's going to start, almost certainly. Um, I think we'll see... Uh, game shipping probably end of this year for the Steam VR uh, early Steam VR hardware. What what's um, Steam VR? Just for our listeners who um, may not know. So Steam VR, uh, Valve Software is a company that makes uh, video games, including Half Life, Portal, and Left for Dead. They also own the largest distribution platform for PC games, Steam. Uh, and Steam VR is their platform for virtual reality games. It's a, there's a software component with. Uh, you know, that people can write their games to tie into the hardware and stuff like that. But then there's also a hardware component. So HTC, the people who make uh, cell phones and among other things, uh, is making a headset and then uh, a set of controllers that basically you can put on, walk around. And instead of a sit down kind of uh, more traditional VR experience, you can literally clear out a room, put these things in the corners and then walk around a room holding two controllers as if you're in a virtual world in your real world as well. And those are the next steps up, literally, the more of your physical body being uh, it represented in that virtual space. You start with Google uh, Google uh, Cardboard, which is just head rotation. Then you move to the current iteration of what Oculus has shown, which you can move your head in a limited positional capacity. Uh, and then Steam VR, uh, the demo we've seen, which is a full room interaction where you know you can empty out a bedroom in your house, set up these sensors, uh, and then be able to walk in you know what's like fifteen foot by fifteen foot space. And what was games like in that environment? Um, so they showed a they showed a, about an eighteen minute loop at at the game developer conferences here in San Francisco, and that loop started out with basically a loading screen, uh, loading environment, which was kind of reminded me of like that scene in The Matrix where they go into the white space, and then uh, Lawrence Fishburne says, "Hey, we need guns," and, and all the, the, the guns. Yeah, came out. it was kind of uh, reminiscent of that. Uh, from there, you got dumped into a series of, of game demos. One of them was the thing on the deck of the ship with the whale that swam up to you. Um, one of them was a really low polygon, a, a very lo-fi kind of cooking simulator where you would load up, you, you like you had a recipe that said, make a grilled cheese sandwich, do this other thing, and then um, you know basically assemble a sandwich all in virtual reality using these two controllers. Those don't seem like terribly fun games. Well, I, I, think... I don't want to sound <laughs> like flippant here because this is amazing technology. Yeah, the games and experience, I think, uh, from the developers we've talked to, they're really trying to learn what the language of uh, game control of any type of interactivity in a virtual space is. You know, when you're developing, when you're making a game for a phone or a TV, um, it, the parameters are very clear. You're, the person is sitting on the couch, they're holding a game controller, looking at a 50-inch TV, and then you can have any type of, you know, first-person shooter or flying experience. In virtual reality, if I'm limited to a 10-foot by 10-foot space, you know, what type of 
game, what type of any type of entertainment can I portray in that space? Um, you know, is it going to be like a theater experience? Is it a, kitch- a kitchen cooking simulator? Uh, we're still figuring that out. Well, and, and the constraints for virtual reality are very different than for traditional games. Um, you know, if you look at traditional video games, they've lifted a lot of the language of video games from cinema. So things like, you know, cuts and fades and, you know, transitions and, and dolly shots and all that stuff. Where with VR, if you move the camera in the wrong way for somebody that the camera is their brain's viewpoint into the world, it can make them physically ill. So it, like making games and making experiences for virtual reality is going to require a complete rethink of the kind of the language of cinema that we've been using for the last hundred years. I find this uh, one thing you said uh, a little ways back fascinating, that it's not the crisp details, not hyper-realism that makes this go. Because that seems to run contrary to every other piece of technology that I'm using. Like, our phones are all about, like, you know, higher resolution. Fidelity. Fidelity, yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So why is this different? Uh, so you're, so one of the reasons it's different is that your brain is smart about this. The way you perceive the world, uh, it, it's we simply don't have the graphical capabilities right now. A lot of the tricks that graphic designers and game developers and or any type of media, any, if, uh, a filmmaker, all those tricks they use for that flat 16 by 9 screen, they simply don't work in the VR space. Your brain scrutinizes details differently. Uh, second of all... Th- your brain does more work. It compensates for that. You don't need to have, you know, Weta, Lucasfilm style graphics, Hollywood blockbuster effects to have a wow experience in virtual reality because your brain feels like you're in a virtual place. And that in itself lends itself to some hugely open-ended experiences. To, to give a point of reference, if you're talking about making, say, even Pixar style animated, 3D animated films, they spend three or four hours per frame uh, animating and rendering those animations, not counting the man time. I'm just talking about the computer time to draw the frame. Each one, they do 24 of them a second in a film. When we're talking about VR, we're looking at minimum of 90 frames per second. And that stuff all has wow. to happen each time. So that means each frame, instead of being rendered in three or four hours, is rendered in you know six milliseconds. I've seen some amazing research about interactions within the space. It's not just about you having a static experience in some virtual space, but your interaction with avatars or even other people can be enhanced. There's actually a research paper that I read recently saying that you can actually have some causal benefits, like you can manipulate people in a virtual space in a way that you can't in real life. Uh, it, for example? Well, for example, they like you can script an avatar to have very uh, rigorous responses that like play with your emotions in a certain way. And because you have full control of that avatar, you can induce certain emotional states from the person on the other side. And I've wondered, have you interacted with VR where you interact with humans or avatars in a way that felt real? Most of the stuff that we've seen so far has been way on the tech demo side of of actual real experiences. I think there's one thing that we played at one of the GDCs was a multiplayer game where – our avatars in the game were sitting on couches kind of diagonally across from each other. Um, and, and you guys just hanging out, broing out? Yeah, we were in couches. Much? We had game controllers. We were playing with little virtual fighter guys on the coffee table. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that, I took off the glasses and I looked to where Norm was in the game, but he was actually sitting over on my right. And so, you know, I looked to the left. Norm was sitting on the right. Um, I, but I don't think we're seeing – like we're not – we're still at the very beginning stages of this. We're, we're not in the, at the, the great train life. robbery. We're yeah. not at, well, at sure, Wizard of Oz. You make a good point about that whole second life and, and, 
and um, the experience being, I, I think the best way to describe it is more visceral. Uh, when y- your entire visual sensorium is in that space, you can't look away. If you're interacting with an avatar, you know, it's, you have to make eye contact. You know, I think a good example is playing a horror game, for example, a horror experience in virtual reality, uh, which is very different from watching a horror film. Um, when, when you're watching a horror film, you can look away, you can close your eyes. Here, if you're wearing good headphones and in the virtual reality experience, your brain believes you're in that space. You can't simply just look away or close your eyes because it's, it's all around you. Well, and sound is a huge part of this too, right? You know, one of the things that they've recently been working on with at Oculus is positional sound. So previously, you'd go in and you'd have stereo sound. You'd hear stuff coming from the left ear. You'd hear stuff coming from the right ear. Um, now they're doing modeling of of the way your brain, uh, you know, detects. Basically, your brain detects where a sound originates by kind of doing some incredibly complex math subconsciously based on the timing of the sound arriving in one ear and the other ear. Um, and they can mimic that and generate that on the fly in headphones now. So you'll hear something coming up into the right or back into the left or down in front of you. And that kind of helps draw. It's part, it's another part of learning the language of the of VR. They have to use these audio cues to direct your attention. So you see the thing that they actually want you to see because you could be looking completely 180 degrees in the wrong direction. So you mentioned Oculus and you mentioned this off the top that, you know, Facebook bought Oculus for emptying billion dollars. $2 billion dollars. And I know it's been well dissected, but why? Like Facebook's not a hardware company in, in, you know, on the surface. Why would a, a company like this be in VR? And then as a follow-up to that, it seems like every company seems to be delving into VR. Sony, Microsoft. So, so VR, you know, for, for us, $2 billion is an unbelievable amount of money. For Facebook, it's, you know, a, a small percentage of a good year. Um, it's still not nothing. It's no, it's definitely not nothing, but it's a stakehold in a frontier, right? So they're looking. They're basically. Mark Zuckerberg has said, I think in a Reddit AMA, right, Norm, mm-hmm. that um, he views VR as a communication medium. Facebook is undeniably a company that's about communication. So, I mean, in that context, it makes a ton of sense. You know, a lot of people were really nervous about the Facebook acquisition of Oculus. Uh, just because you know Facebook buys stuff and the, their record with making it awesome has not been great. Um, the thing we've seen, the the thing that gives me hope is that Facebook is one of a very small number of large companies that I think has the resources to actually make this happen. Because two billion dollars is a drop in the bucket compared to what actually needs to be spent to get the the virtual reality experience to the point that I can put on my mom and she's going to have a good experience and have fun. So at this point, we're nowhere close to to you actually buying this as a, con- a broad-based consumer product. So uh, Valve and HTC announced that the Steam VR hardware will be available by the end of this year um, for consumers, for normal people to buy. Presumably that means there will be games and stuff as well. Like, I-, I think that that's sooner than I would have expected. It- it's an early adopter platform. I mean, right now, and I think through the end of this year, uh, we're going to see real consumer products. Uh, even the Facebook-Samsung partnership will yield something you can put your phone in, uh, the next uh, whatever the next uh, Samsung Galaxy Note phone is. Um, and that's something that they'll sell to the consumers, but it's not going to be something I would ever want to get for my mom or uh, someone who so is just curious. So you never see it becoming ubiquitous. Not, not, like, not this not year. Not like a phone. Not, I, not this year. 
I, I mean, if you'd asked me in 2002 if smartphones were going to be ubiquitous, I would, told, would have told you no. So, I mean, anybody who can predict what's going to happen in technology more than four or five years out is wouldn't be on the a podcast hanging out. Right. They'd be working for Apple or Google yeah. or somebody doing logistics stuff. Um, the, the, the challenge is one bad experience. I mean, we've seen this before. One bad experience sours people on the, on the whole thing. Oh, VR makes me throw up. I don't like that. And once that happens, it's all over um, for that person forever. Presumably, so the, the first VR addict. Yeah, the, you the, must have had bad experiences with VR, I, given how many systems you guys have tested. I don't get motion sick, so I don't have a problem. I've uh, actually had bad experiences. Norm's had bad experiences yeah. right over there in this very yes. room. Oh no! Yeah. How yeah. do you get past it? You just push through. You have to take off the take off the headset. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's one of the great things. Also, you know, I mentioned VR addiction. It's a question that's been brought up at conferences. Um, it, it is it is a, a fable. You know, we've seen in science fiction uh, it, when you take off the glasses it's very easy to acclimate yourself back into the real world. And there's going to be no real substitute for the real world. Um, it's still going to be fantasy in, in the glasses. So we're not getting the holodeck with this. Well, I mean, there's research that shows if you have a 15 by 15 room, then you can have people walk infinite distances by warping their perspective just enough that they walk in a curve instead of a straight line. So, you know, there's no... We may be getting the holodeck. You're just not going to have to wear glasses for the time being. <laughs> I, I was joking about the holodeck, but that's amazing if they could you know, craft that with just a 15 by 15 room. That seems like no space at all. I mean, I don't, I don't pretend to know how that works, but people have said, hey, if we have 15 feet by 15 feet, we can make you walk in, in circles. So I've tried out um, Oculus a number of times, uh, mostly at my university that I work at. And uh, the perspective of the scientists that utilize this, and I've used it in two different labs. One was a 3D visualization lab where they... Uh, create 3D uh, versions of different viruses and molecules and flip them around. And now you can do that within an Oculus headset. And you uh, can, can you get inside the viruses at that point? Like, see you can see like, they manipulate look like? them with your hands. It's very minority report. It's very cool. We should come see that. Oh, you should totally come see that. And then there's another lab that hooks people up to uh, an EEG and does real-time readings of that EEG, which is this helmet that sits on their head that leads electrical signals, and then maps that into an Oculus Rift so you can fly through their real electrical signals flying through their brain, which is a, both amazing products. And I was totally blown away by both. And the comment from the technicians that uh, worked in these situations is that it's kind of a flight of fancy. They didn't see utility. They saw value from like, oh, it's a cool visualization. But that's as far as it went. It wasn't utility yet. So going beyond games, do we see VR opening up possibilities of utility? I mean, we've seen, we've seen a handful of really strong educational demos, including one at the University of Texas's Viz Lab, where they basically recreated an art gallery that doesn't exist anymore that was a, uh, a source of inspiration for a famous writer. Right? Oh, so you could walk up to the paintings. You could walk up to the paintings and look at them, get real close, and see the whole thing. How was that? Um, it, this, was, this was a long time ago, so it was on the first development kit. But as the resolution of the screens has increased, I'm sure it's much, much better now. I don't think you should shortchange the benefits of uh, visualization mediums. Um, if you think about um, the potential of virtual reality for research and, and in medical research in particular, uh, it's a difference between you know having to manipulate a 3D model with uh, a keyboard or mouse or some rudimentary controller and being able to just look around in a space. I think it offers a new perspective, and for people who are smart enough to see to take advantage of that. Um, it could, there could yield some benefits. I have heard about it in my university. I work at a medical school. 
um, using it for surgical simulations. And this technology in this iteration doesn't seem so far-fetched for, like, pilots and uh, and other people that use, you know, sort of simulation you, technology. You can lo- load up Euro Truck Sim 2014 right now. What is Euro Truck Sim 2014? It is a European truck driving simulator where you can get in a, in a, in a truck pick up lo- a lorry, depending on which part of Europe you're in, <laughs> pick up your load and haul it from place to place. You can drive from Milan to Minsk if you want. Um, it's, it is, you get local radio stations, the whole deal. <laughs> you can hang your head out of the side of the car window to see what's behind you when you're backing up, hook up a steering wheel to it. It's the, it's the, it's the total package. So yes, you can simulate. I, you can definitely simulate that. I don't know about surgery right now, but we're getting there. But I think that's it's not something that's there now in the way they talk about it. But it's the hope down the road mm-hmm. that you can generate stuff and put people in an immersive environment that they feel like they're there. Well, and I mean, we haven't even talked about 3D video. Right now, there, there are several, at least a half dozen startups that are working on building three-dimensional video that you could, you know, full 360 degrees 3d video so you can put one of these crazy cameras on the middle of a stage and you can see what the middle see you know see what your concert looks like from the stage or from the fifth row of the audience so you can have an event experience that's 100 percent real Mm -hmm. eventually live too theoretically live why do you say theoretically there's a lot of math involved because right now they take like 50 cameras aimed in all different directions and then stitch them together and post so it's a and and, you know like everything else there's no tool path for that so you can't just Load that video into Premiere and do some nonlinear editing on it. It's not going to work. I'm just, I'm struck by that because the idea is that I could go to a basketball game without ever having to go from my living room. You just lay I on put your on the, yeah. and they the wouldn't helmet. need fifty cameras for fifty people. One camera system, mm-hmm. a million people, just right at the center court. Right, sitting right next to Will Smith at the Sixers game <laughs> is this weird, scary camera that's given everybody the complete courtside experience. And talk a little bit more about the 3D video. I've never seen a 3D video. What does that feel um, like? It actually it, feels it's, it's like, a, you know, I have this weird judgment from the outside that, like, why do I need to be able to spin around 360 to see? Um, it's a lot for performances right now. Uh, the current demos are for concerts and uh, like stage performances like Cirque du Soleil. Uh, they're not great demos. Uh, the best stuff to come out of that is actually the audio. The positional audio is something that's easier to do than than the video. Uh, but these are elaborate rigs, spherical rigs with dozens of cameras, and then uh, they'll do the stitching, like Will said. Uh, but it, it's, this, it's it's really tough to make it believable. Imagine, imagine if one of these cameras was on you, Felix Bumgarner, when he jumped out of the balloon and parachuted from a hundred thousand feet. Right? Um, you could get that complete experience. In virtual reality, when you put the glasses on, it feels just like a, a virtual reality game. But everything is a little bit higher detail because you are looking at live video, at, at not live video, but recorded video from a live source. Um, and you can look around, you can see what's happening behind you. A lot of times, you know, the same problem applies with games. You maybe don't know where to look if the audio is not good. So you have to have some sort of audio cue that says, "Oh, something interesting is happening behind me. I should turn around." Um, that stuff's tough because you can't move those cameras because, again, anytime you mess with people's perspective in VR, it throws off a, a large percentage of people. So, you know, are we going to see VR feature-length films? Probably not. But I think we'll see definitely a lot of, like, songs recorded on stage at concerts and things that maybe are hard to get to for most people. But maybe this is a way of making that accessible to more people. What's going to make VR keep pushing forward and not collapse like the last iterations? Is it price? Is it 
content? Is it hardware? I think you make a really good point about the potential collapse. Yeah. Uh, among enthusiasts right now, uh, there's a really strong belief that VR can't fail, that we're, we're there. But it could very well be that three years from now, we're looking back and like, oh, wow, that almost happened. Uh, many things. It, it could be price. And there's so many point, potential points of failure that we have to really tread carefully. Um, it's really tough because people don't know what the experience is without trying it on. And they have to build out, you know, they have to get these in stores for people to try. If, if people have that bad first experience, they're not going to come back for more. And they're definitely not going to spend what I assume is going to be four or $500 for the initial kits. Um, I, I really, the other side of it is, of course, software, right? So the hardware can work perfectly. And if there's not compelling software experiences that people are excited about and want to pay for, it's, it's not going to work. So the classic example in video game is Mario 64. You know, a ton of people went out and bought Nintendo 64s when it was brand new because there was this brand new kind of game that no one had ever imagined before that was a 3D Mario game. You know, so instead of running from side to side on a 2D plane, you were exploring these worlds. If, whoever figures out how to deliver that kind of experience that's that has that same kind of hookiness to to vr the killer app yeah they're gonna make a ton of money and sell a lot of games and move a lot of units for samsung oculus valve whoever it happens to be what's your hope for this technology what do you want to see come out of the next you know year because it feels like a year is a huge horizon for this as quickly as it's moving i mean there's there's a lot of like VR dystopias in science fiction, right? If you look at Ready Player One <laughs> yeah. uh, by Ernie Klein, which is the, the most recent of the VR books that I can think Being of. Being turned into a movie, I believe. Steven Spielberg is attached, as I understand oh, it. Oh, that um, young, young filmmaker. Yeah, he's new, but I think he shows some promise. <laughs> um, but if you look at that, like it, the, the real world in that, in that book is terrifying. It's people living in trailers and apartments, and they're basically logging into VR couches and drinking food paste, and and you know it's it's grim. Um, I, I mean, my hope is that it is a communications tool, so that if I'm in San Francisco and you're in London and we want to chat, we can log on to a virtual reality room and 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 have a conversation, a face to face conversation, whether we're uh, you know in the same room, we're five five thousand miles apart. Norm, your yeah. hope? I, I, I'm really excited for what entertainers, entertainers, uh, game developers, filmmakers, photographers can be able to do with it. Yeah, a lot, a ton of it's on the game developers because they're the first wave, and they have to figure out the hard stuff um, working with the hardware partners. Will Smith and Norman Chan, thank you for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Indra, have you ever tried VR? I haven't, not with one of those like, you know, immersive glasses, although as part of my PhD, one of the tasks that we used to test our epilepsy patients, so these are patients who have electrodes implanted, and we were actually measuring single unit or single neuron action potentials while they were doing a particular task. One of the tasks was a taxi driver game that felt like virtual reality for them. So I know a little bit of that experience. And the one thing that really you know, hit home for me is how nauseating it can be if it's not exactly right. So, you know, we were a bunch of grad students and postdocs trying to code up this virtual reality, and it's hard to do. (laughs) Um, And, you know, it it would feel kind of, you know, you'd start driving. And if and if you didn't get the speed just right, if you didn't get the sort of rendering just right, it would actually make you sick to your stomach. My first experience in VR in sort of modern times was 
uh, trying out Google Cardboard uh, a year or so ago. It's this, you know, little cardboard kit that you fold yourself as lenses in it. I paid five bucks on Amazon to get this thing and I snapped my phone into place and I was really blown away with how good it was for what it was. Like I folded this thing into shape myself and I popped it in. It had apps that were totally immersive and fun. I mean, it wasn't great. But for what it was, it was really excellent, and it totally opened up all sorts of doors. And since then, I've I've used Oculus a lot, and I really love it. And what's fascinating to me is I tried Google Cardboard on my son. He's four, and we got this app that was like sort of you can fly through the universe, and he had been learning about planets in his, in his class. So he got to like fly up to Jupiter and see it himself, and I could see like the look on his face was like one of wonder and like real enjoyment. Even though I knew like five minutes in, I started getting nauseous. But as an intro, I was really excited. And then moving to Oculus, it got better a lot faster because there's a bunch of research labs at UCSF where I work. They're using Oculus to do visualizations, as I mentioned in the in the podcast. And how quickly they've improved over you know the last 18 months is remarkable. Uh, I'm not a big gamer, though. So I'm not going to be like the person that this is targeted to in the first wave. But I think this is going to be part of our daily life. Can you see that? Absolutely. I mean, you know, just think about like the movie experience, how it's trying to be as as immersive as possible, right? IMAX, 3D, you know, you're trying to make the sound really loud. So you can, you know, you really can't try to be part of the action. I think that that is really compelling. But, you know, I also think that what's really interesting about this technology is that it's starting to let us think differently about what it means to have a subjective experience, right? This is the big question of consciousness, you know, they call it, you know, the hard problem and so forth. And it's something that we struggle with as neuroscientists to understand exactly how, you know, the matter of the brain can lead to subjective experience. And if you think about it, virtual reality is kind of like hacking into that from a different perspective. It's, you know, not just us sitting around thinking about, well, you know, what's going on in the brain when we're subjective, when we're having a conscious experience, but rather someone's trying to create a conscious experience on the outside that immerses you in it. So I actually think in terms of our understanding of how consciousness works, virtual reality is going to make a lot of strides. For me, it's not really the science question that's driving it for me. It's the cost. It's cheap. I mean, last week you were talking with Eric Chang about drones, about how it was only like twice as much as a GoPro to buy the drone that we were flying around Mount Davidson. It was only about a thousand bucks. Oculus is 350 bucks. This is like in the, I know that $350 is not nothing, but that's cheap for the kind of experience. That's less than like the game systems like Xbox and PlayStation and whatnot. I'm going to take a flyer on it just because it's affordable uh, to try, uh, as opposed to like when it was in the mid 90s, I had to go to an arcade and try it out. So I I echo what Will and Norm said, that it, there is this tentativeness that it could fail. And if it fails, it'll be a spectacular collapse. But I'm going to try it out just because it, it's so affordable that I, like, why not? Well, what if it really does succeed? So there's the other question, right, of books like, you know, Ernie, Ernie Klein's Ready Player One, where what, what if we become a society that prefers the virtual world to the real world because we can make it better for ourselves? Don't we already prefer the virtual world to a certain extent? I mean, look at the addiction that people have to certain internet, uh, to internet sites and games and whatnot. I would say that's already happening. I'm not a big believer in this like dystopian future that always gets described. And Ready Player One, awesome book. I'm not like fast forwarding that we all are on our couches, just, you know, uh, immersing ourselves in this experience. I think it's going to be a tool. 
a tool that's not a replacement for real life, but it's a tool that's going to allow access to all sorts of locations and uh, experiences that you couldn't have before, like going to a basketball game. I mean, the Warriors are playing right now in the NBA Finals. How awesome would it be to pay $100 to go to a Warriors game when a real ticket costs 1000 and have a fully immersive 3D experience? It would be pretty cool. Well, my current book right now is Neil Stevenson's latest. Where oh, Seven Eves. Yeah, the moon just blew up. So I'm more concerned about, you know, the world ending in two years because the moon is falling apart. So maybe I should table my virtual reality worries for another little while. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. But before you go, I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Ben Leadham. Uh, he's at Mostly Safe on Twitter. And it was through one of his tweets that I found out first about the lymphatic vessel system that we talked about at the top of the show last week. So thank you, Ben, at Mostly Safe. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow on Facebook at slash inquiring minds podcast and you can send us comments feedback future guest ideas things we should talk about in science and the news or anything else you'd like to inquiring minds at climatedesk.org and once again we'd like to thank our sponsor loot crate the subscription box for the geek gamer and nerd in all of us for less than twenty dollars a month you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear apparel collectibles and unique one-of-a-kind items and more Head to lootcrate.com slash minds and enter code minds to save $3 on any new subscription. Remember, you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash minds and enter code minds to save $3 on your new subscription today. And we'd like to thank Discount Filters for sponsoring today's show. Stop worrying about the air quality in your home. DiscountFilters.com will send you an email reminder when it's time to change and also when it's time to replenish your refrigerator, furnace, and AC unit filters. They have filters to match any fridge, furnace, or AC unit, and if you aren't sure what filter to get, they also offer helpful filter finders, as well as experts who are available if you need them. And with free shipping and returns, you can't go wrong. Visit discountfilters.com slash mines and receive 10% off your order. Again, that's discountfilters.com slash mines to get 10% off your order. Inquiring Minds is produced by virtual avatar Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre This. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.